Okay, so if you were here, we ended the message last weekend with Jonah right in the middle of a very, very difficult situation. And so after he made that choice to run away from the Lord, right, after he gets on the ship, instead of heading northeast, he heads west to what we would call today southern Spain. After he is in this incredible, severe storm, and after he's found out through the casting of lots that he's the cause of the storm, Jonah literally finds himself being thrown off the ship and into the stormy waters of the Mediterranean Sea. And so even though the sailors didn't wanna do it, they picked him up, one, two, three, they threw him, the prodigal prophet, overboard. And as soon as, he hit this, as soon as he hit the waves, you remember this? All of a sudden he hits the waves and the turbulent storm turned into complete tranquility. Craziness turned into complete calm. That's what you call a miracle, right? And that miracle led to these polytheistic pagan mariners to turn away from their false little G gods who didn't exist and to put their trust in the Lord God of the Bible, the Lord God of Israel, the one and only true God. And for that we say, praise the Lord, right? And so that's the scene above the waters. Above the waters, everything is wonderful and calm, but below the water, man, something else is going on entirely. Below the water, it's getting downright scary. I want you to picture him, there he is, Jonah, and he's now sinking. And as he's sink, sinking lower and lower, I wonder if he heard it, right? Right? So on that very happy note, we pick it up today, Jonah chapter one, verse 17. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. And so as he began to sink into the sea, right, all of a sudden, perhaps out of the corner of his eye, he sees it. It's a massive, great fish coming his way, and the next thing you know, the mouth opens up, and the next thing you know, Jonah becomes breakfast. Now, this fish was obviously huge, and even though it doesn't say whale, in the text, it could have been a sperm whale, um, which by the way, uh, unlike other whales, the sperm whale has a large enough mouth, more importantly, a large enough throat and a large enough stomach to easily swallow a man whole. I discovered in my research this week that sperm whales like to sometimes feed on giant squid and sometimes they swallow the giant squid completely whole, and a lot of those giant squid are way, way larger than a grown man. And so was it a sperm whale? We don't know. Um, the sea creature that swallowed Jonah that day, uh, it might have just been a special creation from God. And as I said in week one, I have no problem believing that, because if our God can create a massive universe, our God can easily create a massive fish. It's just no problem with him. The problem is, though, with us, because we like to fixate on the fish. We like to focus on the fish, and it's really a distraction because when we're fixated on a fish, we're kind of not focusing on what God wants us to get from the book of Jonah. And so it's really not about the fish. The identity of the fish doesn't really matter. What matters is that God saved Jonah on that day. And I want you to put yourself in the wet sandals of this prodigal prophet. As he's sinking down beneath the waters, no doubt he is thinking, I am going to die. And then as he looks and he sees the giant fish opening his mouth and he feels himself being sucked into the mouth of the fish, he's now thinking, I'm really gonna die. But then when he all of a sudden gets in the fish, and he comes to his senses, and he realizes I'm still conscious, and my feet, my legs, my, I'm, all, I'm all intact, and somehow I'm breathing, Jonah thinks, man, I'm alive. And the next thing he probably thinks is, what's that smell, right? Can you guys imagine what it would have been like to be in the belly of a great fish? Three words come to mind, dark, 
slimy and smelly. And so Jonah's trapped, and he's probably thinking, what's gonna happen to me now? You know, am I gonna be digested? This is not good. Maybe I should pray. And we think, yay, Jonah, finally, right? Finally, you're, you're gonna give up being a prodigal prophet, and finally, you're gonna become the praying prophet, you know, praise the Lord. And he really does pray a beautiful prayer here. So right now, if you're looking at Jonah chapter two, verse one, can you say amen? Yeah. We're just gonna read through the whole prayer, verses one through nine. By the way, before I read the prayer, just so you know, this prayer from Jonah is filled with phrases from the book of Psalms. What does that mean? That means that Jonah has been hiding the word of God in his heart, and it's coming out now in his prayer. All right, so Jonah chapter two, verse one. Then Jonah prayed, praise the Lord, right? Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, a Hebrew word for grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me, Psalm 42, seven. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, Psalm 31, 22. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, Psalm 69, one. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went, can you guys shout out the next word please? Down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, Psalm 30, verse three. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, Psalm 31, six. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, Psalm 50, verse 14. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord, a direct quote from Psalm 3, eight. What an amazing prayer. Saturated with scripture, an amazing prayer from a guy who finally surrenders to the Lord. And so for the rest of our time together, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pull out four principles from the prayer of Jonah, four principles that we can actually apply uh, to our lives today. So if you're taking notes, here's the first point. Jonah's prayer came from a place of humility and brokenness. How many of you guys know that that's a good place to be? Humility and brokenness. A lot of times just the opposite of what we see in our culture, the opposite of what we see on TV, the opposite of what we see in movies, the opposite of what we see on social media. In those places, it's all about pride often. It's all about, you know, me, 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 me. But Jonah's prayer, it came from a place of humility and brokenness. But not until he went down. And so we've seen this, right, in the story of Jonah. He just keeps going down, down, down. First, what happened? He went down to Joppa, that's chapter one, verse three. Then he went down into the ship, that's chapter one, verse five. Then he went down into the sea, that's chapter one, verse 15. Then he went down into the great fish, that's chapter one, verse 17, again referenced in chapter two, verse six. Down, down, down. How many of you guys know that sometimes you gotta hit rock bottom before somebody finally looks up to the Lord? And that's what's happening right here. He's going down, and it wasn't until Jonah was in the belly of the fish with seaweed wrapped around his head that he finally became humble, he finally became broken, and then he returned to the Lord, and he said, in verse two, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. Regarding all this, uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll said, when does Jonah feel inspired to pray to the Lord? <laughs> In the depths of the sea. 
in the dark cavity of a fish surrounded by half-digested fish food. Jonah's seemingly hopeless circumstances make him acutely aware of his, can you guys say the next word, please? Helplessness, that's a good place to be. And he cries out in prayer, thankful he has not been drowned. You see, sometimes it's in the seemingly hopeless places of life. Sometimes it's in the difficult places of life that we realize this is actually the best place I can be. Why? Because now I'm humble, now I'm broken, and now I'm repentant. There is a psalm that fits perfectly with this. It's Psalm 119, verse 67, where the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, inference, now that I've been afflicted, I keep your word. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes when we're prideful and stubborn, God will do this and he will allow us to reap the consequences of our sin. In other words, he will allow us, like Jonah, to be afflicted. Why? Because he wants us to be humble. He wants us to be broken, and he wants us to be repentant, and that's a good thing. So let me just pause the message for a second and address those of you who may be in the room or may be watching online right now, listening to the podcast later or watching YouTube later. Um, If you are running right now from the Lord and you know who you are, But if you're running from the Lord, can I just encourage you, why don't you come back to him today? Why don't you put the brakes on, turn around, and take a sprint back to your father who isn't doing this, but whose arms are open wide? Why don't you get back to him? Why should I? Number one, because he is an awesome God and he loves you and you should do it for his glory. But uh, there's a lot of secondary reasons, right? Here's one of those secondary reasons. If you'll come back to him, you may avoid a lot of difficulty in the future. You may avoid getting swallowed by a great fish. You may avoid having to reap the consequences of the sin in your life. I also wanna pause, pump the brakes, and I wanna talk to those of you who may be enablers. And so you're here, and what you're doing is you're not running from God, but you're enabling somebody who is. You're enabling an unrepentant prodigal by helping them out. If you're listening right now, say amen. Amen. Listen, enabler, as long as you keep making good what God is trying to make bad, you're actually hurting the person instead of helping them. And that's so good, I wanna say that one again. If you're here and you're enabling an unrepentant prodigal, as long as you continue to make good what God is trying to make bad in that person's life, you're actually hurting the person that you're trying to help. If God has actually brought a great fish into this person's life, if God has brought difficulty into this prodigal's life, he may be doing that to bring that person to a place of brokenness and humility and repentance. But as long as you keep bailing them out, as long as you keep protecting them, as long as you keep shielding them from the consequences of their poor choices, how are they ever going to learn their lesson? And so Jesus tells the story, the parable of the prodigal son. You guys all know it. And so after the son disrespected his father, after he took his his inheritance, after he went into a faraway land, after he lived a reckless life, blew everything, wasted everything, and then after the famine, and then after he's unemployed, and after he's gotta go look for a job, and the only job he can find as a Jew is feeding pigs, which for a Jew is about as low as you can go. And he's there, and he's so hungry, and he's so poor, as he's watching the pigs eat pig pods, he's actually desiring to eat what they are eating. It wasn't until the prodigal son reached that point that he finally came to his senses. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 15. And he, the prodigal son, was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Now listen to this. 
and no one gave him anything. Nobody gave him anything. Then the next verse, but when he came to himself, he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. You see what's going on here? Jesus says it wasn't until this guy hits an all-time low. It wasn't until no one gave him anything. That's when he came to his senses. That's when he said, I'm going home. And so if you're here and you happen to be helping a prodigal, you could be making good what God is trying to make bad to help that prodigal repent. So maybe you need to just stop helping him or her. Now, if you're listening right now, say amen. amen. I also wanna clarify that what I'm saying does not apply to every situation where one is helping a prodigal, right? I taught you last week, there's descriptive verses in the Bible, there's prescriptive verses in the Bible. The fact that Jesus said no one gave him anything, that's a descriptive verse of that, that particular situation right there. That is not a commandment for us to never uh, help a prodigal person. And so what do we need now? Well, we have the general principles of the word of God, but we have the specific leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives as born-again Christians. Amen. And so sometimes God may lead you to help a prodigal, but sometimes he may say, you need to step back and stop shielding that person from the consequences of their poor choices. My main point is this. It wasn't until after Jonah found himself in the lowest point he could go that he finally came to his senses and he went from a prodigal prophet, chapter one, to a praying prophet, chapter two. And that leads you to your next point, if you're taking notes, and that is that Jonah's prayer came from a place of humility and brokenness, praise God. But then number two, Jonah's prayer acknowledged his acceptance of God's discipline in his life. And so where is that at? That's in verse three. So everybody look at Jonah chapter two, verse three. Jonah says, for, and I want everybody to please shout out the word you. Okay, so that's, he's talking to the Lord there. For you, Lord, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah finally admits it. He says, you, Lord, you're the reason all this is happening to me. You, Lord, you're the one who cast me into the sea. And you may be thinking, I thought that was the sailors, right? One, two, three. Well, yeah, but Jonah finally comes to a place where he accepts that a sovereign God allowed the sailors to do what they did, and Jonah accepts that as divine discipline. And so let's talk about discipline for a little while. The Greek word for discipline uh, in the New Testament, I'm not gonna try to pronounce the transliteration there, but I will read the definition uh, from Blue Letter Bible, I think they're referencing Strong's Concordance here. It says that this discipline means the whole training and education of children. Now in case you're thinking about our kids across the street at Calvary Christian Academy, well yeah, it would include children, like literal children, but how many of you guys um, are children of God? So this includes you and me. The whole training and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals, and employs for this purpose now commands and admonitions, and now reproof and punishment. And so if you're a child of God, by the way, Hebrews chapter 12 uh, tells you that if you're a child of God, you can expect discipline. You can expect that in your life. If you have no discipline, um, Hebrews 12 says you're illegitimate, you're not a child of God, so you gotta go back and make sure you're saved. But if you're a child of God, you can expect to receive divine discipline as the Lord trains you, as the Lord educates you, and as the Lord cultivates your mind and your morals. We all get disciplined as children of God. 
but I gotta take a side road here for clarification. And that is, you gotta understand that divine discipline is not always the result of our disobedience. Let me say that again. Divine discipline is not always the result of our disobedience or of our sin. You say, how do you know that? Two ways. Number one, the definition we just had on the screen. It said nothing about um, 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 divine discipline being the result of our disobedience. It's all about the training, the education, the cultivation of God's kids. But number two, the reason I know that divine discipline isn't always the result of our disobedience is because the story of Job. The story of Job. We learned that in that story that sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, things are going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of. Things are going on that have nothing to do at all with our sin, um, and yet it leads to, in God's sovereignty, divine discipline in our lives as he trains, as he educates, as he cultivates our mind and our morals. Job. Man, Job went through an extremely difficult trial. And what happened during that trial? He lost it all. Man, he lost his health, he lost his wealth, and he lost his prosperity. And not just his prosperity, but his posterity. He lost his kids. I don't know how much more difficult a trial can be. And then, right, his so-called friends. I tell you, if you haven't read Job, Recently, go back and read it and then make a commitment at the end of the book that you'll never be a friend like Job's friends. Because his so-called friends came on the scene and they basically crossed their arms and, and said, you know, what sin have you committed that has caused this calamity to come upon your life? And what's the answer? The answer is no sin. Hey, Job wasn't perfect. But here's what we know, that even God said that Job was blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil. And so, hey, ladies and gentlemen, before we become Pharisees, before we start pointing our fingers at people who are having a hard time, right, accusing them of sinning against the Lord, we got to go back and we got to remember the story of Job and the principle that divine discipline is not always the result of our disobedience. In Job's situation, no way. There's something else going on. In Jonah's situation, absolutely. Jonah's discipline is absolutely the result of his disobedience. And so let's talk about the pain that Jonah went through. Here's what you need to know, that God and I want you to hear this next word. So if you're listening, say amen here. God sometimes uses pain to get our attention. I'm not saying all pain is divine discipline at all, right? But God does sometimes use pain to get our attention. Regarding this, C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. He shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so when pain is used as a form of divine discipline, it has a way, right, of stripping away our pride, of stripping away our self-confidence, our self-reliance. And if we're deaf, Ladies and gentlemen, if we're deaf, how many of you guys know that God has a way of turning up the volume? Right? When God first went to Jonah back in chapter one, it was kind of like a whisper. Hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach repentance to the polytheistic pagans that I love and that I want to spare. Right? But what did Jonah do? He ignored God. So what did God do? God turned up the volume. And the next thing you know, there's a severe storm coming down on the boat that Jonah is in. But what did Jonah do then? We saw it last week. He still hardened his heart. Listen, he would rather be thrown overboard and drown at sea than go and preach to the people that he hates, the Ninevites. 
And so what does God do? He turns up the volume even more, and the next thing you know, Jonah looks, and here comes a big fish, and the next thing you know, he's being sucked into the mouth, and the next thing you know, he's as low as he, anybody could go. He is in the belly of a great fish, and in the belly of that creature, it's like a megaphone blaring in his ears. It's almost like, can you see? There's Jonah, he's inside the, inside the sea creature, and God's got a megaphone, and God's like, can you hear me now, right? And Jonah finally breaks. Jonah finally repents. Jonah finally goes from a prodigal prophet to a praying prophet. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. And so here's the question. Did God discipline Jonah because he didn't like him? Listen, if you still have that view, you got the wrong view of God. You're not understanding the character and the nature and the love and the omnibenevolence of the Lord. God did not discipline Jonah because God didn't like Jonah. No, just the opposite. God disciplined Jonah because God loved Jonah. And Jonah knew this. Jonah knew the Psalms, it's all through his prayer. But right after Psalms, there's another book that was written. And a lot of it was written by Solomon. It's called Proverbs. And so look at Proverbs chapter three. This was written 150 years or so uh, before the time of Jonah. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Stop kicking your feet. Stop fighting God. Stop having that attitude. It's not doing you any good. Don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he doesn't like. Is that what it says? No, him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so if you're a believer here this morning, you're watching online, you're a believer, right? And you're going through divine discipline, whether it's because of your waywardness like Jonah or some other reason like Job, just know this, that the Lord disciplines the person that he loves as a father, the son or daughter in whom he delights. Again, don't fight it, don't get mad, don't kick your feet. Just accept it and just learn from it because it will produce in you, Hebrews 12, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It's a good thing. Discipline's a good thing. And now we go to our third point from Jonah's prayer. And so if you're taking notes, here's your next point. That Jonah's prayer not only came from a place of humility and brokenness, it not only acknowledged his acceptance of God's discipline in his life, but it showed faith I like this one. In God's goodness and hope for what kind of a future? You see that? How many of you guys believe God's for you, not against you, right? If we feel like we gotta keep saying this and saying this and saying this at Calvary, because so many people, right, maybe because of the way they were raised with very harsh, angry, strict, mean, at times, parents, and they start to have a wrong view of the Lord. Listen, God's for you, he's not against you. And Jonah knew that and his prayer showed that. Again, one of the things I love about his prayer, it's filled with these um, um, phrases, a number of phrases from the book of Psalms. Psalm 38, Psalm 18, 6, Psalm 30, verse 3, Psalm 31, 22, Psalm 42, 7, Psalm 50, verse 14. And I don't think I even got all the Psalms that he uh, alluded to in his prayer. And so how many of you guys know, right, that Jonah, while he's in the belly of the great fish, did not have the scroll of Psalms in there? Right? Number one, it's too dark, he couldn't read it even if there was a moray eel or whatever jellyfish, he can't illuminate the scroll. No, he doesn't have a scroll with him. And so back then, they had scrolls. Today, we have these leather-bound Bibles. Well, here's my point. Even though Jonah didn't have the Bible in his hand at that time, in that tight spot, even though in that dark time of his life, he didn't have the Bible in his hand, he still had the Bible in his heart. Why? Because he had been immersing himself and saturating himself with the word of God. And in his time of need, he drew from it. Now this is good stuff. And I hope for the next five minutes, you guys will listen with ears like Dumbo. Because this is gonna help you out. There's two types of Christians. If you think about this in terms of a famine, 
and a desert and a well, right? So there's a Christian, all metaphorically speaking, and this Christian is thirsty, and there's a well, and so what does he or she do? They take their bucket and they put it down into the well, and thunk, it's dry. They're in a time of need. Spiritually, they're thirsty, they need some help. But thunk, they pull it up, dry as a bone. But then there's other Christians who sit in a service like this and it's a wake up call and they realize I really need to start incorporating in my life the discipline of saturating my heart with God's word. And then not if the dark day comes, but when the dark day comes, when they're spiritually thirsty, they put that bucket down and splash. It's filling up with the water of the word and they drink it like Jonah in the belly of the fish in their dark time. And what does it do? It increases their faith and it gives them hope for a bright future. And they make it. They get through the difficulty. And so Paul tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Now, yes, the context of that verse I just quoted is speaking about saving faith. A lost person hears the gospel and they get saved. I understand that. But don't you realize, in addition, after we're saved, we can build up our faith through the word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction, here it is, and instruction in righteousness, building us up, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so as Jonah is meditating on God's word in the dark place, and as he's recalling God's word in his prayers, all through the prayer. What happens? His faith is bolstered. And all of a sudden, he has hope for a bright future. I personally believe that the Holy Spirit somehow communicated to Jonah, hey Jonah, hey son, I am not finished with you yet. And Jonah believed it, he hung on to it. I love what David Guzik said about this part of Jonah 2, very simply, in faith. Can you guys say the word faith? faith? Jonah knew that he would be delivered. Now, how do we know that Jonah knew for sure that he was gonna be delivered from the belly of the great fish? Well, please look at verse four. In his prayer, he said, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet, here's the faith, I shall again look upon your holy temple. One day I will be back. I may be in a belly's fish, a fish, uh, the belly of a fish now, but one day I'm gonna be in Jerusalem. I'm gonna see your holy temple again, Lord. How do we really know that Jonah knew that he was gonna be delivered? Look at verse six. At the root of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And yet, here's the faith, you brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord, my God. That's so beautiful. You know, how do we know for sure that Jonah knew for sure that he's gonna be delivered? Look at verse nine. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. In other words, I'm gonna go to Nineveh. <laughs> And then, I love this phrase, I'll tackle this at the end of the message, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so you wanna say, wait a minute, Jonah, <laughs> you're fish food. You're in the darkest place you've ever been in your life, the lowest place you've ever been in your life. Jonah, you're being digested. Jonah, come on, man, be a realist. How can you make statements like that? If you're listening, say amen here. Amen. Here's why, because Jonah made a choice in the dark place. He made a choice to live by faith and not by sight. Amen. And that's the choice that we have to make as well. We have to make that choice. It's easy to make that choice when everything's fine, when we're on dry ground, when we're safe and sound. It's easy to make that choice, 
but it's in the dark place, especially where we've got to make the choice that we are going to live by faith and not by sight. If Jonah lived by sight, then the scripture would have said, after Jonah came out of the great fish, after he stood on the beach of the Mediterranean, after he realized I'm safe and sound, then Jonah said, I have been delivered from the pit and I know that one day I'm gonna look towards your holy temple. But here's my point. Jonah didn't make those statements after he was safe and sound on dry land. He made those statements while he was still in the slimy stomach of the great fish. He didn't make those statements in the light. He made those statements in the dark. And so here's the question. When you're going through that dark time in your life, that difficult time in your life, do you still have faith in God and hope for a bright future? And here's what you need to know, that right now it may be a wonderful, wonderful season in your life, but guess what? Dark days are coming. I just wanna encourage you on Sunday morning. <laughs> it's gonna come. Those difficult days, they're gonna come. And so what's the best, wisest thing that you and I can do? We can begin to prepare for that time. How? Saturating our minds with the word of God. And then we're so saturated with the word of God that as we're praying, we're recalling the word of God and it's coming out in our prayers, right? And what is that all, what's that whole process doing in the dark place? It's strengthening our faith and it's giving us hope for a bright future. And we make it through the trial. I wanna encourage you guys to trust the Lord even when it's dark, when your marriage is on the rocks, when your kid is running from God, when your boss says, I'm sorry, you no longer work here, when your finances are low, whatever the difficulty might be, whatever the dark place might look for you, please, at that time especially, Make sure that you believe this. God is good all the time and all the time, God is good. That's the place we gotta come to in our lives. Because there's lots of prodigals that are in a faraway land and they heard a sermon like this and they did not prepare themselves by saturating themselves in the word of God. And now, man, they're in a place that's not good. Look at verse 10, it says in verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited, that's a wonderful word right before lunch, right? It vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. All right, so, so here, here we go. The great fish, what, what, which direction is it going into? It's going back to Israel, or maybe up a little farther north to Phoenicia, somewhere on that eastern coast of the Mediterranean. It's going, and as it's going, it's starting to feel queasy. You know, I need some Pepto-Bismol here, right, or whatever. And as it's nearing land, it feels this urge to regurge, right? So the next thing you know, that great fish beaches itself up on the shore, and the next thing you know, blah, right? Out comes Jonah tumbling onto the sand. I want you to picture the scene. You say, I'd really rather not, Pastor. <laughs> hey, we're gonna make the Bible come alive, right? And so there's Jonah, right, boom, and he's getting up from a pool of puke, and it's just dripping all off of him. But here's my question. Do you think he really cares about being covered in vomit? No, you know why? Because Jonah is happy to be alive, he's happy that he serves a God of grace, and he's happy for second chances. So he's like, woo, yeah, I'm alive. God is good. I made it through the dark place. And you know what I'm gonna do now? I'm gonna pay my vow. I'm gonna obey the Lord. I tell you, if you're running from God, turn around, come back, sprint back to the Lord because that's the best place you can be. And so where did the great fish vomit the prophet? Well, we're not exactly sure. I think, personally, somewhere around Joppa, right? So God's just like, all right, I'm gonna hit the rewind button, and we're gonna start all over. And by the way, 
the first verse of chapter three says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so I think right around Joppa, it may have been a little north, north in Phoenicia, but here's what we know, Jonah, wherever it was, on that east coast of the Mediterranean, um, Jonah gets on a camel or a donkey and he begins to head the 500 plus miles to Nineveh, which is modern day Iraq. And I gotta believe as he's on his way, this guy feels good. You know why? Because ladies and gentlemen, a clear conscience, knowing your sins are forgiven and obeying the Lord just feels good. And that's where God wants us to be as his kids. But there is one more point from the prayer that I don't want you to miss. And so last point, Jonah's prayer, bottom of your screen, admitted that we cannot save ourselves, but only who can save us? The Lord. Now please, don't stop listening right now because I think this is probably the most important part of the message right here, right now. So many people are confused about this. You say, where do you get that from? I get it from the end of verse nine. Please look at the end of verse nine. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so Jonah knew, while he was in the belly of the great fish, I cannot physically save myself. I'm in the belly of a great fish. I'm just a man. There's no way. I don't care how many times I punch this thing. There is no way I'm going to save myself. If I'm gonna be delivered, it's gotta be the Lord. And the Lord's gonna have to deliver me. The Lord is gonna have to save me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then, after that, he's delivered. And then later, he goes and serves the Lord. But that's, this is a wonderful truth, not just physically speaking for Jonah, but spiritually speaking for all mankind. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear me. We cannot save ourselves. Look at what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He writes this to the believers in the church of Ephesus. For by, can you shout out that third word? Grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so you've heard me say it a thousand times, we are saved from the penalty of sin by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the true gospel. God is offering mankind a gift, and the gift has been paid in full by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And so I want you to hear the gospel as we begin to wind down here. The gospel, there's good news, there's bad news, and there's good news. Sometimes I forget this good news and I go bad and good, but I, I'm learning to start with the good news. What's the good news? You have been made in the image of God. Amen. What does that mean? That means you're priceless. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you're worthless. That is a lie from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. How can anyone who's made in the image of God be worthless? You're not worthless. Unworthy? Because of your sin and my sin, yes. Worthless, no way. So we've been knit together, Psalm 139, in our mama's wombs, and we are made in the image of God, and we, ladies and gentlemen, are priceless. The problem is we've sinned. We've inherited sin from Adam, and we've also chosen to sin. And the Bible says this, for all, can you guys say the word all? All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says there's none righteous. Think about all the masses of humanity in every nation, every tongue. There's none righteous, no, not one. Okay, and so the bad news is, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. 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 That's physical death, 
but that's also spiritual death. Why? Because we're physical beings, but how many of you guys know we have an eternal soul? And our eternal soul will, win, will live in one of two places. There is no purgatory. It's not in the Bible. Our soul will live in one of two places forever, either heaven or hell. But the problem is the penalty of sin is death. Spiritual death, eternal separation from God. That's bad news. How many of you guys are really thankful for good news? Here's the good news, Romans 5, 8. But God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Lagos, the word, came and he clothed himself in humanity, never stopped being God. Fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and as that spotless, sinless lamb of God, he voluntarily went to the cross. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. So what was he on the cross? Our substitute. And he took your sin and my sin into his body on the cross, and he paid for our sins in full. Completely (laughs) paid. He shed his blood, why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And then, three days later, he got up. Greatest miracle outside of creation that's ever occurred in history. He got up and he marches out of the grave, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over hell. This is our hero, this is Jesus Christ. And now, what is he saying? He's offering salvation. And John chapter one, verse 12 says, as many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them, nobody else, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. You say, what do I gotta do? You gotta turn to Christ and repentance and faith. And did you know that repentance and faith are two sides? I don't have any coins, so I'll use my Hall's cough drop. Did you know that repentance and faith is two sides of the same cough drop, so to speak? And so you got repentance here. What is repentance? In the original language, metanoia, it's a change of mind. Well, doesn't it lead to a change of life? Yes, after Christ transforms you and Christ does the work. It's a change of mind. It's a change of mind about our sin. My sin is wrong. It's a change of mind about myself. I can't save myself. It's a change of mind about the Savior. Only Jesus can save me. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Repentance and faith. What's faith? It's trust. Now I trust him that his payment was efficacious for the forgiveness of all my sins. I receive Christ as my only hope, the only way of salvation. And if you will do that, His spirit will come inside of you. He will seal you into the day of redemption. You will become a child of God, born again, blood bought, and you will one day take a last breath and open your eyes in heaven. That's the truth. And so if you guys could bow your heads and close your eyes at this time, I wanna give anyone who would like to receive Christ that opportunity right here, right now, both in this room and at home if you're watching, Just bow your head and heart, no matter what's going on in the house, just bow your head and heart. If you're ready right now to receive Jesus Christ as the savior and boss of your life, I want you to say this from your heart to him. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sins. I know the penalty of sin is death, but I believe you came and I believe you died in my place. I believe you paid for my sins in full. Thank you for shedding your blood for me. So now I turn to you, I open my heart and I ask you to come in. Jesus, I receive you as the Savior and the boss, the Lord of my life. 
thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, of course, the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So, if you're here and you just prayed to receive Christ, just for like five seconds, would you just stand up so that we can rejoice with you and affirm you in your faith? If you just prayed that prayer to receive Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of your life, would you just stand up? Anybody else? Yeah, God bless you. Anybody else? Got in the back? Awesome, 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 awesome. Praise the Lord, you guys can be seated. That is so awesome, right? And so this is what we want our church to be about. We want our church to be about helping people hear the true gospel and turn to Christ. And so I, I commend you guys for your courage and standing up. Maybe some of you guys stood up uh, at home as well. I commend you um, as well. By the way, did you know that everything I just said is written down on our website? And so if you'd like to encourage yourself in the gospel, uh, just go to calvarypsl.com, click on Knowing Christ, the gospel is there. Now, very important you hear this. After you've received Christ, now it's time, since you're saved, right, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, now it's time to be baptized. Nothing in the Bible has anything to say about infant baptism, it's just not there. It's after we receive Christ as our Savior, then we're baptized. And so our next baptism is December 2nd on the first Thursday. We'll do it right here, and we would love the honor of baptizing you. You can register at calvarypsl.com, um, click on Next Steps, and then click on I would like to be baptized. I love you guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Pastor Andrew, come on and close out the service.